Welcome to Shedding Light Hunting Stories Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the average Joe and their hunting stories. I'm your host, Travis Williams. You're listening to episode 29. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming back for another episode. Sorry we missed last week. I know you were just sitting by your computer or had your phone refreshing the entire week saying, oh, Travis, please, please drop an episode. Okay, I know that you probably didn't do that. I'm probably the only person that notices whenever I miss a week. Um, (laughs) But if you did notice, uh, thank you. I'm I'm honored that you uh, like this podcast, that you're coming back to listen to it, and uh, love the traction that it's getting from you guys sharing it, and I just appreciate that. Um, You know, some of you guys are sharing it on places that I'd never even think. You know, I I haven't been a part of the Go Wild app or anything like that. I just joined it, Uh, but Go Wild is like this place where you can show stuff, and it sounds like I'm I'm giving an endorsement or a sponsor, but I'm not. I'm just telling you it's one of those places where you guys have shared it, um, and I just appreciate that. Um, really, honestly, I, I can post on social media and do all that kind of stuff, and that might get a few people to kind of take a look at it, but if you tell your friends, hey, I, there's this podcast where this weird dude from Ohio is just kind of interviewing average Joes, um, you know, that that's going to gain some traction more than anything else. So I really appreciate it whenever you do that. Also, from what I've been told, a five-star review helps on iTunes or any place else that you can leave that. And um, I've always welcome your feedback and love hearing your stories as well. That's my favorite thing is having average Joes and Jills come on and share those stories. Um, but you can tell from the title of today uh, that maybe we don't have what you would consider an average Joe. But I'll, I'll, I'll get to that here in just a minute. Um, I do want to say over the next couple of weeks what we will be looking at today. We're going to talk a little bit, just kind of an overview of different hunting stories, and we're going to hear some awesome, awesome stories about first deer and things like that. Um, But starting next week, we're going to kick into our elk stories. Um, Elk season is coming up, and it's just about all I think about since I'm going on an archery hunt in September, and I'll be updating you guys as we go on that. But uh, just super pumped to go on that trip, and I want to release some episodes that kind of deal with some great elk stories. And if you go back a few episodes, you can listen to some of those. Um, there's a guy named Mike who was, uh, won a trip to Kentucky last year and got to go. Uh, he didn't win it. I mean, he applied for it and got drawn, which is like winning since it's so hard to get drawn there. And then Paul Medell. So we've had a few elk stories uh, before, but we're going to really kind of dive into it and get some different perspectives uh, over the next month or so. If you're not an elk person, that's okay. There'll be some other stories mixed in, and I hope that you'll still enjoy it. And, and for those of you who maybe are thinking about going on an elk trip, I'd be more than happy to help share. There's so much to know. I see these guys every day on like Colorado Elk Hunters Forum asking so many like rookie questions and they just don't know where to begin. Uh, if you want to send me an email at sheddinglightod at gmail.com, I'd be more than happy to just tell you the basics of what I know from preference points to uh, what it's like when you get out there. I've been out there for a second season uh, rifle hunt in 2016. Um, but, you know, kind of going into it, what does it take? How much money does it cost? What's your options? That's stuff that I have researched like crazy over the last few years, and I'm no expert. Uh, I haven't killed an elk yet, but I can tell you what it takes to get there and in that process. So if you have any questions, and if you, could, if you say, oh, I can never do that, well, then you never will. But if you start making some plans to go and you start putting back some money, you know, maybe you can't do it over the next couple of years, but in three, four years, you could go. If you put back 25 bucks a month or 50 bucks 
bucks a month or whatever you can afford or your wife will let you. Um, that's what I've been doing. I'm, I'm not a millionaire. So I've been putting back money for three years and, um, you know, trying to work some extra on the side, doing some different things. So anyway, I'm not going to get too far into that. Today's guest is what we're going to talk about. Um, you know, a lot of times we try and have average Joes and Jills on, and every once in a while, if you look back, you can see I've had some maybe some average guys that have done more than average things. Um, but by average Joe, what I'm shooting for is normally I just want to have people that you've never heard of come on the podcast and share their stories. That's what I want 90 to 95 percent of this podcast to be. I want it to be your podcast. Um, but every once in a while, I think it's neat to have somebody on that's maybe uh, maybe well-known or something like that that I still consider to be an, an average person, an average Joe that just has had an opportunity to do some pretty cool things. And that guy today is Troy Ruiz of Primos Honey. Um, I'll give you a little background on this. Whenever I was in uh, growing up, I didn't watch hunting TV. I didn't watch hunting shows. Um, we had three channels, uh, 7, 9, and 12, whenever the wind blew. And that's all I knew. So I didn't get to watch any hunting, you know, hunting shows. Until college, I went to Walmart and picked up this little DVD called The Truth. And I think it was probably like the truth 19 or something like that and my buddy Trav who's in shedding light now we would sit around and we'd watch these these videos and get all pumped up and uh, they'd say this ain't Hollywood and I, and I believed them I believed the Primos guys that these were guys that were going out they weren't hunting high fence areas maybe they're hunting a ranch or they're hunting some place where you know you'd have to pay to get in and they manage their deer but uh, for the most part they're going out hunting and in, in scenarios that I could relate to and it wasn't a lot of bells and whistles I didn't realize that that was actually a thing until I actually started watching some hunting shows on TV and you see these guys and it's just, it's so over the top, so many cuts and edits and high music and, and just craziness and then they shoot the deer and it's just like this insane amount of <laughs> uh, fist pumping and, and granted, you know, there's a place for that, we've talked about that before, but Primos always seemed to be like the real deal to me. And you might have a different opinion, but to me, I've always loved those guys. And I can tell you now, after sitting down for three hours <laughs> with Troy, he's the real deal. Uh, I've never enjoyed a conversation more just sitting down and, and talking to a guy, uh, tell his stories. And so we're going to go ahead and jump into that podcast. But we're, just so you're aware, we're going to break this into two parts. I'm not going to give you all three hours uh, today. Uh, we actually had a little bit of technical issue. Uh, we did this over the phone instead of Skype. And, and so the quality isn't as great as what I'd like it to be, but I, th I think it's okay. I don't think it's like terrible or anything like that. But we are going to break this into two parts. Part one, uh, Troy is going to be kind of telling his story about how he got involved with uh, some of the groups that he was a part of, and or there'll be some hunting stories mixed in, and he does a great job talking about that. And then next week, we're going to release part two, which kicks off, off our elk, and, and Troy's going to talk about elk hunting, and I'll give you a little teaser. He's going to talk about a uh, hunt that he went on um, a f with a famous duck hunter, and I'll just leave it at that so you'll definitely want to tune back in for next week but uh not going to ramble this is a little bit longer one um, i'm so excited uh, to go ahead and let you guys listen to this interview I had a great time sitting down with troy ruiz of primos hunting all right guys i am here with my guest very excited to have him on today he is from primos this is troy ruiz welcome to the show man man how you doing today travis hi I'm, I don't know about you up there in uh, in Ohio, but here in Mississippi, we were fortunate to have a little July cold front come through the other day, and it knocked our humidity down from 100% to 80%, and and we thinking it's like opening day of deer season down here. Right now. <laughs> yeah, I was just telling my wife that I, same thing happened here just like uh, yesterday. It started to feel like fall. I was 
you know, you try not to wish away the summer, but you know, fun things happen in the fall. So that's right. And then you and you wake up two days later, and reality hits you right in the face again with all the humidity, especially for yeah. Us. Yeah, I stepped outside today, and it's it's warmed up a little bit, but I still can't complain. It's not as bad as what it was. So how's things going down in Mississippi, man? Man, things are going good, buddy. Just just been sitting here in in what I call the dungeon. Uh, which is my edit room and edit suite where I edit all the stuff for Primo's Truth About Hunting. Me and a, another gentleman, Slade Reeves, who works with us here at Primo's, and you all probably have seen him on TV in the past. Uh, Slade, has, we have two edit rooms here, and him and I do all the stuff for, for the TV shows and, and a bunch of other stuff, commercials and different things. But usually this time of the year, it's it's crunch time and trying to keep these shows um trying to stay ahead of the curve and stay ahead of the deadlines because you don't want to get behind because you really want to you want to spend time you don't want to spend two or three days editing a show and then just cram it out the door you want to you want to get all the good stuff in there and it's 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 a tough it's a tough entity in itself simply because you're dealing with you know the way we do it and what you see us do at Cottonmouth is we're there usually a week to 10 days at a time and sometimes we go home for a day or two and come right back but when you're taking a week to ten days of content and trying to cram it down in 22 minutes um, and still keep it worth watching, it, it can be tough. So you really got to be careful on, on what you put in, what you take out. And it's funny we're working on an episode right now. Well, Slade's working on one, and I'm working on one. I just finished episode 21, and he's working on show 22, and I'm back working on 23. But on 22, he finished. We got that episode all in a timeline, and it's uh, it's about 11 minutes over. And when you sit down and watch the show uh, being 11 minutes over, it's like, what do we take out, man? This is really, really good. And you you just have to start cutting and crunching. So that's where we're at right now. And you, yeah. it's, it's funny. You walk out the door and go home at night and you lay in bed and you, you're thinking about, well, I can cut here or I can cut there. Or, <laughs> you know, it's just there's no, there's no, there's really no, there's no downtime. And yeah. that's the weird thing about what we do. But anyway, it's it's good. That's where we're at right now. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I actually was just posting on a forum about that the other day. Somebody was talking. Somebody, you know, on one of these forums was talking about what they didn't like about certain um, certain online um, videos or things like that. And they were, you know, going on. People were commenting about what they liked, what they didn't like. And I said, I can tell you. I mean, I've done small time editing, you know, nothing like this. But with what I've done, I've realized it is so hard to create something that everybody likes. You know, yeah. and trying to create. And unless you filmed your hunts and know what goes into that and what goes into editing, it's a lot of work to try and make a story make sense. I mean, if you just want to go out and, you know, put a GoPro on the front of your, your bow and shoot something and you have it for yourself to enjoy, that's that's fine. But if you're sure. trying to create content that uh, hits a lot of people that most people enjoy, you know, that is that is a challenge. Well, you know, something the, that you guys have done well. The creative side of what you do, and I say this all the time to everybody, it's it's – you think of fishing shows. Uh, you know, back in the day when I was growing up with TNN Outdoors, and, and which really it started, uh, Wide Wide World Sports had a show called uh, The American Sportsman that Kurt Gowdy used to host. And it was really the only outdoor show that was on network television. But you think of you think of fishing. What makes fishing exciting to watch on TV? The person standing on the front of the boat. Yeah. Because all the action happens on the water, unless you're fishing with a top water bait, and then you got a guy that's running a camera on the back of the boat that's just praying that a fish strikes the lure <laughs> of you know out of 300 casts. But and it's the same way in deer hunting. You know, you want somebody there that whether it's deer, turkey, elk, or whatever, it, it's the personalities. And and when you're doing what we do, 
as as the guys that are behind the camera and sometimes in front of it, um, a little of both. But when you're the guy behind the camera, you got to make sure that you pull those personalities out of those people and make it fun for them to be there. Because, you know, it, it, it's hunting, but it's our job. I still love to hunt, but there's times when I'm at Cottonmouth towards the latter part of the season, man, I'm sitting there praying for rain because I don't want to get up and go on that morning. You know, it's been a late <laughs> night editing or going through footage, but, you know, it's, it's, it is it's it is what it is. And like you said, it's hard to create something um, that you know other people might like, and you can't please everybody, so you just do the best you can. Yeah. I will, you know, whenever I was uh, talking about Primos, whenever I was – in probably high school or uh, in college was my first introduction to hunting videos and DVDs, and that was the first thing I watched was was Primos. I didn't have cable TV, so I never watched any hunting shows growing up. So I was kind of in the dark on all that type of thing, and I picked up the truth and started watching that. What I loved about it was that it didn't seem like it was you know fake or any like extra stuff just seemed like down to earth guys average yeah. joes going out just enjoying themselves and just putting out putting some quality videos out there that's what I've always loved about it well you know when when all this this started um even when I was working at Mossy Oak I went to work at Mossy Oak in 1993 94 um and and that was the era back then that infomercials were a big deal and folks like Will and folks like Toxie and me and Preston Pittman and every, Dick Kirby, everybody was in the industry at the time, took that, uh, basically that tool and said, hey, why do we have to call in all these other people to help us promote what we do, which at the time was outdoor writers by the way we did things, and I still love working with some writers today, but why don't we just do it ourselves? Who better to promote what we are, who we are, and what we're trying to sell to the public uh, as as gear than us mm-hmm. and and how do you do that well the first thing you do is you make people like who you are and be yourself um you and i both agreed on this the other day when we were talking that that today's world of social media has has really ruined a, lo- a lot of people in trying mm-hmm. to be somebody that they're not um you know i can't i can't get on a plane today and drive over fly over to california and just step off the plane and expect to take george clooney's job because i'm not george clooney i'm troy ruiz <laughs> We do a hunt every every year, and we and we promote it pretty strong with QDMA, and we bring those. We, they they have two winners that'll come, and they can bring whoever they want on this hunt, and they come over to Cottonmouth and hang out with us for a couple of days. And we had some guys there last year, and you know the first day that they were there, they were really apprehensive and kind of kind of overwhelmed at being there, so to speak. And after two days being there, that that's all they kept saying was like. I mean, you guys, this is just like our hunting camp. It's it's no different. You guys are, what we see on TV is what you're really doing. I said, yeah, we're not actors. We're just doing what we do. And he's like, both of them, they, they were brothers. They were like, this is so cool. He said, we were expecting to come in here and have grip trucks and all this lighting and all this stuff. And he said, man, you guys have just got cameras. And yeah, you got a lot of equipment, but you're hunters. I'm like, yeah, that's who we are. That's what we do, and it, and we're no different than nobody else. We just fell into the right place at the right time to do all the right things in this industry and be a part of something that we love to do. And and yeah. and it makes me feel good when those guys said that they were like, "Gosh, I thought for sure y'all were going to be like uppity <laughs> and y'all not be able to deal with us and and not want to be around us." I'm like, "Man, you're here to be with us, but we're here to be with you." And those guys were so much fun. I, I had so much yeah. fun with them, and they yeah. killed two great deer. 
Oh, your tagline, this ain't Hollywood, right? <laughs> That's right. It ain't Hollywood. It's the truth, buddy. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back a little bit and kind of get into some of your favorite stories, Troy. Um, kind of looking back. Let's take, let's go back to the beginning. For anybody that doesn't know you, and maybe maybe I'm sure people have been seeing you hunt for years, so there's some of those stories that may come up. But just kind of take us back to the beginning with you getting into hunting and some of those those stories that might surround that. Well, you know, for me, growing up, I'm from South Louisiana, um, about as far south as you can go. Actually, at the end of the road where I, I grew up um, on Delacroix Island, um, there's a sign on the end of our road that says the end of the world. And when you go past that sign, it's water. Uh, and then you hit the Gulf of Mexico, and then you go from there until you hit some land on the other side somewhere around the Yucatan. But um, I, I grew up down there, uh, grew up in a in a fishing uh, family, commercial fishing family, my my dad and I and uncles and several other people, commercial fish down there. And the, the main fishery at that time in that part of the, the world was, was shrimp. Uh, we made our living catching shrimp. So I grew up on a trawl boat, little little boy, you know, doing what he loved to do, spent all his summers on that boat, just loved being on that boat and loved fishing for a living. And But we were fortunate enough that at the time the industry was so strong there was very little imports like there is now for any kind of seafood especially shrimp um that that we made a a a decent or at times you know depending on the year a very good living so my daddy and I didn't have to work much in in the fall which I was in school but he was always home so we hunted uh, I grew up trapping um muskrat otter coon nutria all that stuff, that was a huge living back then. I grew up in that entity as well, and there was a lot of people that that was their second part of their income. You you fished in the summer and you trapped in the winter, and there was folks that dredged oysters, and there were folks that caught crabs for a living. It was Everybody was living off the land, and, and I was fortunate enough to grow up in that same time and, and be a part of that. But there was always time for hunting, uh, for me especially duck hunting. I grew up duck hunting down in South Louisiana, that's what you did. Um, and and the, the, the sheer numbers of ducks that that we had in those days were absolutely incredible. As a young boy, uh, I couldn't wait for September to know that teal season was coming. And we never, ever, ever had to worry about not having ducks. That, and that mm. was weird. And it's weird now because, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't tell you the last time. Well, yeah, I can. It was 19... It would have been 1998 or 99 would be the last time that I duck hunted down home in, in South Louisiana because the duck hunting is so sporadic. Mm-hmm. Uh, friend, friends that I grew up with, um, same thing. You know, those friends of mine that still live down there, they're game wardens, and and you know, I tell them call me when ducks come. But it's one of those things you got to be there when the ducks are there because they're not staying long. Um, but as a kid, it was it was just in a never-ending factory. We always had ducks. And that's what I grew up doing. And until I was about nine years old, which is when I killed my first deer uh, in South Louisiana, actually it was in southwest Louisiana on a little place called Pecan Island. And as a kid, never hunting big timber or big woods for whitetails, and we didn't have videos back then, never knew a whole lot about deer hunting other than the little bit of deer hunting that we did in South Louisiana, which was... You find some deer on the ridges, you light a fire on one end, push the deer off the other end. When they swim the canal, you shoot them. That's how we hunt a deer. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, no, no. That's the truth. And if, if you didn't shoot them that way, you shot them at night. Um, you know, it, it, you can you could sit here and t- if you if you polled 100 hunters, you know, 65 of them probably broke the law at some point in time in their life. And I'm not proud about it, but 
that's how I grew up. That's what I knew. We wasn't doing anything wrong. We wasn't trying to shoot numbers. But down in South Louisiana, we didn't have trees, and the little bit of deer that you had in certain places was mostly living in marshes and on little ridges. And when the water got high, I mean, I can remember down in Pecan Island one morning, opening morning of duck season, me and my daddy's in a blind, and people are shooting all over, and all of a sudden I just hear this coming, and I'm down in the blind low, and my daddy says, don't move. And he sits there, and we sit there, and I'm afraid to move. I don't know what's going on. And I look up, and there's this eight-point standing in the decoys. And my daddy, yeah, my daddy rings a shell, you know, Winchester, I'll never forget till the day I die, Winchester Super X, the red shell, rings the shell so when he pulls the trigger, the whole shell will come out like a slug and kills this deer standing in the decoy, shoots him right in the throat and just folds him up right there in the decoys. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And I, that was the first deer I had ever seen. And then that, that same year was when I killed my first deer. Actually, it's funny, um... We were riding in the boat, and there was two of them standing on a little ridge. And my daddy said, Daddy, all right there. And we turned the boat around. It was a, a, a doe and a little four-point, and the doe was laying down. And um, we just kind of come pulling by, and the buck stood up, and he was standing behind the doe on the other side of the little ridge, which put, which basically put his head and her head kind of level. And I just had my little 20-gauge, and I, I killed both those deer in one shot. Shot him oh in the head. Gosh. Yeah. And what had <laughs> happened was, yeah, the doe, the doe was injured. That's why she was laid down. So we went up there to find mm-hmm. that's what it was. But, but that's when, that's where my 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 bug for the deer hunting started right there. And then that next year, I had an opportunity to uh, spend some time with a really good friend of my dad's, who was our vet um, for our all of our dogs, especially our hog dogs when we were catching hogs down in Louisiana. But he had a place in Alabama, and it's the first time I had ever done any hunting in in big woods like that and man i got on stand that day and this place was just eat up with those it was actually overrun with deer at that time and i i got on this food plot and deer started coming into this food plot and being the little coon ass boy that i am i had my rifle and my shotgun i said i'm gonna i'm gonna get whatever i can and when these deer started coming in the food plot it, it blew my mind it was 30 36 or 37 if i remember correct that walked into that food plot and the biggest one was probably a four point um, because at that time nobody understood whitetail deer management and how to grow deer and let them get old and all that stuff it if it if it was brown it was down in those days mm-hmm. and um i sat there and watched all them deer and i i, I just I was at all. I didn't even pick up my guns. I was like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this? And that day and that hunt right there um, bit me bad and bit me strong. And, and from that year on, I, I found a way to uh, to make it to Alabama uh, to hunt. And when I was 14 years old, um, got in my first little hunting club. My daddy wasn't a big deer hunter. My daddy was a deer killer. He um, he was more important on just shooting them and making money and, and, and working on that boat and doing the living. He loved to kill them. And down there in, in southwest Louisiana, you hunted them in the marsh. And that's just the way it was. But I wanted to hunt them in the woods. I wanted to learn more about that. So I I found me a hunting club to get in. It was actually a couple of fishermen that, that we knew from down there, and they were in the club in Alabama. And I got in this club with them, and I, I, I was I would go sit at their house and literally wait for them to make sure that they didn't leave without me, so I get in the truck and go with them. Yeah, and then when I turned 15, got my driver's license, I started driving myself up there. And it's funny because there's a place in Meridian, Mississippi, that I drive by, and this sign that's in front of this little shopping center is still there. It's a big sign for the shopping center, and they used to have a a uh, payphone right there 
on that sign. And every time I would drive by there, that was my halfway point. And I would have to stop there in Meridian and call my mom on that payphone to let her know that I was okay and I was halfway there because we didn't have cell phones back then. Yep. And every time I drive back there, I tell everybody about that 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 sign and that telephone right there. And then when I got to Alabama, which was in Bology, Alabama, um, there was a, a little gas station that had a uh, a phone in front of the gas station. And when I'd get off the interstate, I'd call her and tell her I made it, which was another 10 miles to the hunt camp. And then when I got to hunt camp, she didn't hear from me unless I came to town and called her and let her know everything was, was, was going okay. And then I would call her when I left. I would call her when I got to Meridian, and I would see her when I got home because she would time my time. And if I was, you know, if anything would happen and I was late, they would come looking for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. going to take no for an answer. I was going there. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that's a lot of dedication. And, I mean, for a younger guy, that's what you love to see. You know, whenever you see young people really getting that fired up about wanting to go and taking the initiative like you did. Uh, I just took a boy out the other day, and, uh, he's got a new bow, and he's pumped to shoot it, and I know he's going to get ready for season. You love to see younger kids get into it like that. So. Well, it, it bring, it bring, you live vicariously through them, and it brings you back to where you were. Yeah. Because you and I get so busy in this fast-paced world we live in now with, with social media and family and work and everything that we do that we just can't sit back. That's Me, personally, that's why I love going squirrel hunting now. Uh, I, I find a time and a, and a place to be able to do that, and it brings me back to when I was a kid, being able to, to squirrel hunt. Because that, to me, when I was a kid, that was big game where I came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have any deer, very few deer where I grew up. So, man, I, I never forget the first time I killed a squirrel with my pellet gun. I was like, I was like quickly down under at my school. And everybody was like, <laughs> holy smokes, Troy killed a fox squirrel with his pellet gun, you know. And and that's 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 what made it fun, man. And and it's 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 led to this right here. And getting to this point is a is a whole nother incredible story. Holy moly! Yeah. Well, uh, let's just keep going down. I mean, I want to talk. I want to get to elk. You know, the elk season's approaching. But I I just enjoy kind of hearing how this has all worked out for you. If you don't mind, how did you don't mind me asking this question? How did you get into um, you know just with whitetails and the bow and all that kind of stuff? You know, how did I, I know uh, you talked about the gun, but how did you transition over to being a bow hunter, and, and what did all that look like? You know, my, my like again, my dad wasn't a he wasn't a big deer hunter. He he just if he wanted deer meat or somebody needed deer meat, he went and found one and and, and killed a deer. However, he had to do it. And uh, but I wanted to I, I wanted to pursue some other things. And um, me and a good friend of mine that I was going to school with, we just his daddy owned a gun shop. And there were people that came in all the time that traded in different things. And there was a couple of bare recurve bows in there that somebody traded in for, for a gun or whatever. I don't know. And we got those two bows. And that's we started shooting those two recurves in the backyard. And, and as you know, back then, we didn't have good arrows. We, him and I, we just went to the little local, um, it was a it was a Pugler's sporting goods store back then we didn't have a walmart or anything and we just went and bought any kind of arrows we could find i didn't didn't know about the length didn't know about the spine didn't know how heavy how we just got arrows and man we shot up we shot up the neighborhood with those bows and <laughs> and started that's really where it started um I've, i hadn't killed any deer with that recurve but got interested in the archery side of it and then him and I went to high school together, so we're the same age. And when we got to high school, we started an archery club in our high school uh, with our industrial arts teacher, Mr. Joe Didier, who was a huge deer hunter. Uh, had a camp in Alabama not far from where we used to hunt. That's kind of what kept us in common. 
and we started a, a archery club there at Shawmut High School and had a great time doing it and had a lot of people that were interested in it and and had to go through a lot of ropes to do it because everybody was like, you're going to bring bows in the school? And I'm like, well, yeah, I bring shotguns in school right now because that's how our school was. Uh, my principal was a huge duck hunter, and there were times that I would be running traps before school or I'd go hunting in the morning before school, and when I'd come into school, I would walk in in my high school with my shotgun in my hand and bring it to his office so he could put it in the office so I didn't want to leave it in my truck. And you and I both know you do that now. Goodness gracious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they have you in prison. But but for me, the bow hunting deal, that's kind of how it got started. And then um, I I never forget the first deer I ever killed with a bow. Oh, gosh, I was... I'm 18, 17, somewhere around that world, and it was an old, um, I had a Golden Eagle Turbo, Mm -hmm. and I used to break the limbs on it. The first two years I had it, I would would crack the limbs on purpose so I could get new limbs for it every year, and Golden Eagle was good about sending limbs for that bow, and it it was the heaviest, slowest thing you ever wanted to see, but I probably missed four or five before I finally hit that one and it was a it was a yearling doe and I killed that doe and man you would have swore that I just shot the next world record it was absolute the, the feeling that I got from that the adrenaline that I got from that and it's funny because I still get that adrenaline today um yeah. and 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 when that does go away it's time for me to go do something else. Yeah. Well, Troy, tell us about that hunt. How, were were you still down in southern Louisiana? So was it tree stand hunting, or you? On, I was tree okay. stand hunting in Mississippi. Um, okay. And and it's a it was a piece of property that I leased. And and it's funny because where I started hunting on that piece of property is where I got started in this industry. Um, and there was a little local um, restaurant there in town that I used to eat at, and we'll get to that in a minute. But anyway. I knew about this creek crossing, and I wasn't hunting a food source. I wasn't hunting anything. I was just hunting a creek crossing. You know, you saw tracks. You see where the deer are crossing. Surely they're coming through here. Didn't know a lot about it at that time. Didn't understand the whole from bedding to feeding. And I knew where they were coming from. They were actually coming from a man's pasture, really from his backyard, but it's a pasture that were coming from his house to come bed on our side and in uh, in a thick pine plantation, and they had to cross this creek to get there. And I had my stand above that creek, and that that little doe, I could see her coming. Man, she was coming from a long ways away, right down where the the pine trees and the hardwoods meet, where they cut it. It was just a, a cut line, and she was following that line. I didn't know it back then, but now I, I know that deer love following those cut lines. And she just walked that cut line, dropped off into the bottom, crossed the creek, and when she walked up the other side. Back then, I didn't know nothing about meh, or rant or a whistle or nothing. <laughs> Luckily, she stopped. And little did I know, after I shot, I realized it, but she stopped to look back because her big mama was coming behind her. If I'd have waited, I'd have killed a bigger doe. But I was fine with that one, trust me. I was fine. And she stopped and turned to look back, and, man, I hit that doe. And i I never forget, I shot her with a, it was a Puckett broadhead back then. It was the first expandable that, that ever came out. It had like a plunger on the front of it. And I hadn't killed anything with that broadhead up to that point other than a coon. And the only reason I shot the coon with it was to see what that broadhead would do. And the amount of trauma that it caused, I was like, surely it'll kill a deer. Anyway, I shot that deer, and it just took off running like crazy and ran up the hill. And I heard it hit the creek on the other side and come out and kept running. And I thought, man, I'm never going to find that deer. But 
I climbed down and did the traditional look for the blood, found the arrow, found blood. The arrow was broke. It was aluminum arrow, which that's one of the things I miss about aluminum arrows versus hunting with, with the, all the graphite stuff that we hunt with now is when you shot a deer back then with an aluminum arrow, you can hear that deer running forever if the arrow stayed in them because it would be mm-hmm. tinging going through the woods. Clink, 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 clink. <laughs> And uh, I walked up there and found that deer, and I was by myself at my little camp. It was a place that I leased, me and my wife and my father-in-law. And I was by myself, man. I didn't have nobody to share it with other than just myself. And, you know, I had I had to go get the four-wheeler and come back. I had to do it all by myself. And then, and to me, that was that was so rewarding to be able to do that and, and, and do it all by myself and come home and share that story with everybody and show them the pictures just... And again, you know, that was one of those milestones as a bow hunter. You're like, all right, that's my first one. Where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. You do it once, you want to do it again. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Look, I was, I'll be honest with you, that hit me so hard. I, I made the comment many times that I could care less if I ever kill another one with a rifle. This bow hunting stuff is incredible. Mm-hmm. And it still is, um, especially the equipment compared to what we had then to what we have now. It's just, whew, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But Troy, you mentioned that's kind of where it all started with with your hunting career. So mm-hmm. you kind of want to walk us through a little bit, of like uh, how that happened, yeah. and, and maybe some of the stories that went yeah. around that too. So that that uh, I guess it was the it had been two years after that um, during turkey season. In between that time and this this upcoming turkey season, which would have been in nineteen eighty eighty seven or eighty eight, I think it was. I think it was eighty eight, eighty seven. In 1987, I was in a real bad car wreck. Um, at the time, I was doing mechanic work, working for a a Chevrolet dealership down in Louisiana. Um, I had left the fishing industry because it had changed a lot. And, um, I didn't want to be on a boat and be gone from home from my family as much. Uh, I was I was newly married, and I just wanted I just didn't want to work on that boat no more. Um, it, it it wasn't what it used to be. And, and, you know, at 19 years old, 20 years old, you really don't want to, you know, you want to do things your way, but your dad's like, no, we're going to do things my way, and him and I still get along fine. We just, at the time, you know, I'm 19, 20, I was 20 at the time, and pride takes its takes its toll on you, and you think you got it all figured out when you really don't know nothing. But I thought I had it all figured out. Anyway, I was, I was doing mechanic work because I was a really good mechanic, especially growing up on that boat. And my daddy and I always raced. We we raced, drag raced, and we also drag boat raced. So I knew a lot about engines and cars and trucks. And so I took that job. And I was in a I was in a car wreck uh, one one morning test driving a car for a customer and and got injured, hurt pretty bad actually. Uh, tore my back up. I was I was in a '96 I mean a um, '86 Toyota Corolla, pretty much a new car. And this guy was driving a '72 Lincoln Continental, which is a tank. And he hit me from behind. I was dead stopped, and he hit me from behind at about 72 miles an hour and just crumpled that car like a tin can. Mm. And it, it pretty much wrecked my back. Um, my back, I had issues with my spine. I had cracked vertebrae. I had a lot of stuff going on. So it put me out of work for about a year. And I was ready to go back to work. I wanted to go back to work. I had a ruptured disc in my neck. I was... I was a basket case, but at 20 years old, you're six foot tall and bulletproof, and you think think you got it all figured out. And at, I wish I would have listened back then, but I've, I've been blessed with technology now that I've got some great doctors that have done some incredible work on me to keep me doing what I do. Um, anyway, 
during that time, it gave me time to spend some time doing the things I like to do. I was on workman's comp. They wouldn't let me come back to work. Um, the, the company was in a lawsuit with the person that hit me, and it was just it was a bunch of rigmarole. And all I wanted to do was just go back to work. I even said, look, don't even let me come back as a mechanic. Just let me come back as a service rider, and I just want to come to work. And they're like, nope, can't do that. So I was able to spend some time at hunting camp, and turkey hunting was fairly new to me. Um, I had been turkey hunting at that time. Again, my daddy wasn't a, a big deer hunter. He was a deer killer, but he never had any interest in turkey hunting. And I picked that up in about 84, 85. I graduated in 83, and in 1984 is when I really picked it up strong. Um, because, again, down where I'm from, there were no turkeys. So I picked it up when I really started hunting in Alabama. And, and understanding it and seeing turkeys and learning what you could do in the spring with them. And honestly, through what Will was doing through the Truth videos, the Truth One and the Truth About Spring Turkey Hunting, that was some of the very first videos you ever saw other than what Bob McGuire was doing with whitetails. Mm. And I was really interested in that turkey deal, and that's part of that land that I had. There was a lot of turkeys on it, so I started learning how to turkey hunt on my own and actually picked it up pretty well. And uh, being able to turkey call came kind of natural to me because I, I understood duck calls well from growing up in South Louisiana. So a mouth call was like I put it in my mouth and I was making turkey sounds that day. And I'm like, well, this ain't that hard. I don't know why everybody makes a big deal out of it. <laughs> but um, so I started turkey hunting on that place. And uh, one spring morning uh, I, I was filming a, a young boy uh, from the guy that I leased some land from. And the camera that I had was a camera from one of our television studios down in New Orleans. I was also doing some freelance work with a friend of mine that owned a production company inside of Channel 8 Studios. He used to work for Channel 8, but he started his own production company and rented space there. And back in those days, he didn't have a lot of money in his little company, so he, whenever he would go on big shoots, he would just rent cameras from the television station. Well, whenever we did that, especially during turkey season, I would always hold on to those cameras an extra day or two, and I would slip them off into the woods. Uh, the mm -hmm. folks at Channel 8 Studios and, and the, the manager there, the production manager, has no idea to this day. If he's listening to this podcast, he might, but <laughs> they had no idea what I was doing. Anyway, I was down in Prentice filming uh, from a, a young boy that lived on a place that I leased. Uh, his daddy let us put our little mobile home on a part of their land uh, for free as long as I would take his boy hunting and let him still hunt the, the land that we're leasing now. And I said, man, yeah, I'd love to. And he was uh, 13, I think, at the time. Uh, his name's Ricky. And I filmed Ricky killing a turkey. And that day at lunch, went to this little restaurant there in Prentice, Mississippi. And I'm sitting there eating lunch, and I hear the door ring in the back, and I hear this voice come in the door talking, and I'm thinking, gosh, I recognize that voice. And I keep hearing it talking, and it's it's just jabbering just as fast as it could go. And I'm like, gosh, I know that voice. And I turn around, and it's Preston Pittman. And I'm like, oh, my word, that's Preston Pittman, who at the time was my idol. I mean, it's, you know, he was the only – it was him, Dick Kirby, Will Primos, and Ben Lee that you really had in the turkey world that were, you know, the ones you would look up to that were doing some video stuff. And, I'm, and he came in, had this big guy with him, and they went and sat down, and they were getting ready to eat. And, you know, it'd be like today, you and I sitting down eating lunch, and in walks Beyonce. And you're like, man, did we go talk to her? Did we not go talk to her? What do we do? You know, I, 
Like, yeah, I'm going to go talk to her. She's no different than me and you. She's just an average person. So I, I couldn't. I, finally, I built up the courage and I went over there and I said, "Hey, Preston, I'm Charles Ruiz. Nice to meet you." Hey, man, just the typical Preston. And it's funny because him and I are great friends now. But and that leads into the story about him and I. But anyway, we get to talking and they didn't kill any turkeys. And he asked me how we were doing and how we did. And I told him what land I leased. And when I told him the place I leased, he's like, "Oh." That place is eat up with turkeys, and I'm like, oh, I maybe never should. Right then and there, that's the first time I learned in turkey ethics: you don't tell anybody where you're turkey hunting, mm, or any type of hunting. <laughs> no, especially Preston Pittman. And he knew the place, and he says, "Man, that place has got the turkeys." I said, "Yes, sir." I said, "We killed one this morning." He said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "You want to see it?" He says, well, "We'll come take a look at it when we get done eating." And I really think he thought that I wanted him to come see the turkey, but I wanted him to look at the footage because I was impressed with it. So I went in the truck and got the camera, and I came back, and I come walking in there with this huge Beta SP camera. And back in those days, everybody in this industry was filming with either three-quarter with a carry-on deck or SVHS. And uh, he looked at that camera, and he's like, the look on his face was like, who are you, and where'd you get that? How how can you afford that? I mean, at the time, Beta SP cameras were 60 grand without a lens. It was crazy. And... So I rewound it. He watched it. He's like, man, that is some kind of... He said, that's awesome. He said, who videoed that? I said, I did. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. So uh, we got to talking, and they went their way, and I went mine. And the uh, the next week, I'm back up there hunting again, and, and walks Preston and this big guy with him. And they see me, immediately come straight to sit by me, and I'm like, man, I'm some kind of celebrity. Now Preston's coming to sit with me. <laughs> and we, we're talking and come to find out the guy that was with him was, was, is Tommy Bourne and Tommy's mother owned that restaurant the country kitchen there in Prentice and Tommy was Preston's PR director at the time uh, and Pittman Game Calls at the time was a very small business just like Primo's was and Quaker Boy was and everybody that was just getting going in 86, 87 when it came to turkey hunting and we got to talking, and we're visiting, and Preston just comes out, out of the blue. He says, what you doing next week? And this is early March, beginning of the season here in Mississippi. He says, what you doing next week? I said, I don't know. And I basically told him the whole story. I just told you about getting in the wreck and being on workman's comp, and I just, you know, I'm fortunate enough. I come over here to keep my mind clear and my mind straight. I just come turkey hunting. He said, so you, you, you're, not, you're not working? I said, no. He said, you want to go to Florida next week? I was like, do what? He said, yeah, you want to come to Florida with us? I said, and do what? Florida, go to Disney World? He's like, he just started laughing. He said, no, turkey hunting, Osceola's. I said, well, yeah. I said, what do you need me to do? He says, I don't need you to do nothing. I just want you to come film for us. Help me out. I was like, well, yeah, I'll do it. And, you know, I was I was at awe that, that I was even asked to do that. And didn't even think about Troy. You got a family at home. You got a wife. You got you know responsibilities. And man, I didn't even go back turkey hunting. I jumped in the truck and drove straight home. Don't have, didn't have cell phones back then, so I couldn't call nobody. I got home and I start telling my wife this story, and she's sitting there listening to me, and she's like, mm, "Yeah, whatever." She said, "So you going to Florida next week?" I said, "Yeah." She said, "Who's paying for this?" I said, "Preston is." I they, they asked me to go. They is he paying you? I said, I didn't even ask him that. <laughs> she said, well, you know it's spring break. I was like, oh, is it really? She's like, mm-hmm. 
So you go on to Florida with Preston Pittman to go film turkey hunts, possibly hunt yourself during spring break. I said, yeah, isn't it cool? She's like, I don't believe you. In her mind, she thinks I'm going to spring break and chase the women or whatever, but we went to Florida and, and had a great time, and, and, and that was my first go-around with him. And I actually wound up working with Preston from from 1987 all the way to 1993, 90, end of 93, beginning of 94, when I went to work uh, for Mossy Oak. Um, I helped Preston produce um, Making Memories titles of the uh, VHSs that he had at the time. Nobody was doing TV, so um, we were we were producing turkey videos. And Preston didn't have any money to pay me, and I didn't want any money at, at the time. I was willing to do whatever I had to do to prove that I could do what these guys were doing because I I had that fire in my eyes, and I I was gifted with understanding understanding uh, the TV side of of doing things or the video side. I understood video cameras, especially big professional cameras. I understood F-stops and all that stuff. And people in this industry at the time, they were shooting everything on automatic. Um, and, you know, they were struggling with focus. They were struggling with F-stops. They were struggling with ISOs. It was it was incredible. And then they started building cameras that were pretty much dummy-proof back then, which was the Canon EX, I think it was the Canon XL1. Man, mm-hmm. when, when, the, when that camera came out, Everybody was a was a videographer. It was incredible because it, all you did was turn it on and shoot. It did fine other than focusing. And it was a great little camera. And that's where my career started there. And it lasted, like I said, till till 92 and 93. Um, Preston um, Pittman Game Calls had, had consolidated with a couple of other companies. And there were some financial issues with one of the companies which, which caused that thing to kind of fold. And for me, again, being timing... Um, and being in the right place at the right time, a friend of mine that owned Brelmar Products and Johnny Red Bluers, which is one of the companies that was consolidated together with Preston, knew Cuz Strickland at Mossy Oak. They both grew up together in Natchez and went to school together. Well, at the time, Cuz and Toxie and the Mossy Oak brand were trying to break into the TV world. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, uh, myself, Cuz, Preston, we we had did a rider hunt down here in Mississippi, and back in those days, like I was talking about earlier, we used outdoor riders to promote the brands and promote the products. And those riders would come in, you'd invite them in, pay for them to hunt with you, and while they were there, they asked questions, took pictures. That's how we did promotions back then before videos and websites. And um, we had we had a hunt that we did, and Cuz was there, and and that night. You know, Cuz and I were kind of, basically we were the PR directors for that for the for our two companies, uh, me being for Preston and and Cuz from Mossy Oak at the time. And once everybody went to bed, we got everybody situated. Everybody ate supper. Cuz and I were cleaning up the kitchen and getting everything taken care of. And he says, "Hey, I want I want to show you something before we go to, go to bed. I want you to watch this." So we go into the big living room and he puts this VH ta- tape VHS tape in and. And he says, now I want you to watch this, but don't say nothing until you watch the whole thing. I said, okay. So I watched the whole thing, and it's a pilot that they had to present to TNN Outdoors. And I watched the whole thing, and I got done. He said, what do you think? And my first question was, I said, who's running those cameras? And he said, why? I said, well, there's there's some issues. I said, some of the stuff's overexposed. Some of it's a little, you know, the white balance was wrong. And he, he said, well, I'm running the camera. I said, well, I don't mean to dis." 
to, to disrespect you because I'm just saying there's some issues that I see that can be changed. I says, Who, who's editing this for you? He said, we got a guy from Mississippi State um, that's an intern right now with us, and he's been editing with us on all of our SV, on all of our VHS uh, projects that we work on, which at the time they were doing Mega Bucks and Whistling um, and the Turkey video. They didn't do Whistling Wings till I got there, which is the duck videos. And I said, well, there's some things that he can do as well. I said, I don't know a whole bunch about nonlinear editing, but I said, anyway, I said, all in all, it's good. I said, but here's the one thing I see that's not going to work. He said, what's that? I said, Toxy can't be your host. He looked at me. He says, he owns the company. What do you mean he can't be the host? I said, knowing Toxy like I know him in, in the last four years that I've been around him, he's trying to act. Mm-hmm. And I said, if if Toxie would just be Toxie, I think he'll do fine. He said, well, that's not going to work. Toxie has to be the host. I said, why do you need a host? Let the show be its own host. You don't need a host. And that's mm-hmm. not going to work. So he just anyway, we went on about our business. But little did I know when Pittman Game Calls and and the entity that it was in at the time was struggling with some financial issues, because and Kim Norton had been talking because was paying attention to what I was saying and he and he had seen a lot of my work by working with press and, and he needed some help to be able to get this new entity going which was hunting the country is what we called it and uh, those two talked on the phone and because asked Kim he said well if y'all shut it down what do you think Troy's going to do and he said ah, he'll probably go back down to Louisiana and just get back on that trawl boat if I know him because well you mind if I talk to him and see if he wants to come up here and come work with us to help get this thing off the ground and um, I left. I never forget. I walked in Kim's office on a Thursday afternoon. It was in February of '93, and we had a huge ice storm here in Mississippi. And uh, I sat down. Kim said he handed me an envelope. And I said, "What's that?" He said, "That's your last paycheck." I said, "My last paycheck?" He said, "Yep." I said, "You're firing me? What'd I do?" He said, "Nope, I'm not firing you." And he explained to me what was going on with the company and how things would change. And he said they got to make a lot of cuts and get some things. And he says, "He says, but I'm giving you this because I want you to get in your truck and I want you to drive to West Point and go talk to Cuz. Cuz wants to talk to you about going to work with him." Mm. And I was like, "Get out of here, Kim!" I said, "You're crazy." He said, "No, I'm telling you." He said, "I just talked to him." And he says, "I, I, I really want you to do this." And he says, "I know you can do it." But I want you to go visit with him. So, man, I jumped in the truck and drove to West Point and met with Toxie and Cuz, and I was a nervous wreck because I'm thinking, here I am meeting with a bunch of college-educated business owners, and little did I know Cuz never went to college. Toxie did, but they both just two big rednecks just like the rest of us. So you got two rednecks and one coon ass. What could happen? <laughs> and uh, I agreed that, that year to um to go to work there and, and took the job and started working there that spring and then my wife and my daughter and I moved up there the very next um August. It's funny, I moved there on August the twenty fourth. We we pulled up in the driveway of the house that we bought with two trucks, two rider trucks and two pickup trucks. I got out, we unloaded as much as I could. I had a couple of boys from Marcio come help me and the next morning I was on a plane heading antelope hunting and I left that stuff there with my mom and my wife. I said, Good luck <laughs> And oh, I, to this day I thought, What have I what have I done to my family? And the and the funny thing was and it's amazing how God and I'm gonna bring that into the picture here, how God put this whole puzzle together. 
to yeah. bring me where he needed to bring me. But but God had that plan and had it had it worked out perfectly to bring me from where I was to to there to to where I am now. And it's just pretty incredible how that all came together. To know that that looking back on it, had I not made that decision and had not all those things happened the way they happened, had that car wreck not happened, would I still be living in Louisiana, working on a boat, or where I would be, or what I would be doing? It's just you look at that. You look back at your life's puzzle and you realize that you had no control at that mm-hmm. time. And, and I didn't know who had control at that time. I grew up in South Louisiana, a little Catholic boy, and yeah. went to church every now and then, mostly during Christmas or when my, my aunt grabbed me because she lived next door to the church. And, man, I, I grew up a good guy. You know, I, my mom and my daddy teached me well. Um, they were not bad people. and They just taught me to... to to respect everybody and just taught me to work hard and, and mind my business and 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 just just do life. But I, I was I was so far out in, in right field of knowing that there was a higher entity. I knew it was there because I was taught a little bit of that in in church and I listened when I went to catechism as a little boy and honestly the only reason I went to catechism, which was kinda like Sunday school for us now, um because it, it was an opportunity for me to ride my bicycle across the big highway and go to catechism on Saturdays. Other than that, I probably wouldn't have went. Hmm. And um, it's incredible. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, if you just yeah, appreciate bringing that up. I, I think about just the course of a person's life and the choices that you make. You just never know. And sometimes we feel like we put so much pressure on the choices that we make and we don't realize that sometimes it's uh, God, um, actually most of the time, all the time, God is kind of directing our paths and where we want to go, and I mean, we yeah. got free will. We got free will. We got choice on what we get, can do, but at the same time, he's still kind of crafting things and setting up opportunities. And it's neat to kind of look back yes. and see how. All I that always, I always say it like this: He takes a puzzle, and I know we've all built puzzles. He takes a puzzle, and he always builds the frame first, and then mm-hmm. you start filling in the inside. And and every 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 piece that you pick up is a choice, and you sit there and look at and see where that piece goes. And how you yeah. pull that whole picture together, and, and for me to look back on it, wow, wow! Yeah. All right, guys, that's where we will take our break. Thank you so much for listening. Next week we'll come back with Troy, and we'll be talking about elk hunting. We'll be talking about duck hunting, and if you've listened this far, I'll go ahead and tell you it's about a duck hunt that he has with Phil Robertson, and you don't want to miss that episode. So make sure you hit subscribe right now. You won't miss it next week whenever it comes out. I do want to leave you with one verse, kind of going with what he was talking about about how God pieces the the, the puzzle together. Proverbs sixteen nine says, "In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord." establishes their steps. And so just some things for you to consider, some things to chew on. If you ever have any questions, send me me an email at sheddinglightod at gmail.com and be happy to even send you my phone number and we can chat and talk about uh, just those kind of things that we, we have questions on. So anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We'll go ahead and shut it down. As always, remember to shed the light.